We are in Proverbs chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 9. Uh, Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter this evening. It depends how much hot air I have, though. So um, I do want to try to get through this chapter. I don't want to go too slow in this book. So Proverbs chapter 11. Uh, we'll go ahead and we'll read verse 9. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. And so we have in verse 9 this, uh, this contrast between the hypocrite and the neighbor. Uh, we know that the hypocrite, of course, appears one way on the outside, but then is something else on the inside. Jesus was very uh, familiar with hypocrites in his day. Most of them were very religious people who could quote the Bible. Uh, you would look at their life and you would think that they were godly people just based on the words that came out of their mouth, based on the fact that they carried a book around with them. They studied it. They could memorize it and quote it to you. Uh, but yet he understood that the matter is not the outward expression. It's a matter of the heart. So you can say the right thing with the wrong motive or you can say the wrong thing with the right motive. You ever learned that lesson the hard way? Uh, not everyone always knows our hearts. Typically we say, you don't know my heart when we're trying to defend ourselves, but that's a scary thought when you think about the fact that God knows our hearts even when we are wrong. Uh, I never say that to the Lord. Lord, you know my heart when I'm in the wrong. <laughs> I'm asking for mercy, Lord. But the hypocrite here appears in our text, and this hypocrite has one way of showing himself or herself to the neighbor. Uh, and, and ultimately, the hypocrite is only concerned about him or herself. There's no concern for the neighbor. It's just using the neighbor to get something that I want. Uh, and so the neighbor, though, is contrasted with the righteous. Now, in our text, when you look at the language, it's clear that the neighbor is not wise. Okay, please understand we see the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. So the idea is the neighbor has not accumulated wisdom to fend off the hypocrite. Okay, uh, and so the fruit of that is that the neighbor is tricked. They fall into the hypocrite's deceptive ways. But we see the contrast with the righteous. But through the knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. And so the idea is this. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, he declares you to be righteous, right? From a judicial perspective, we have sin on our account. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether it be in thought, word, deed, right? God, he sees the whole picture. We've all sinned and fall short of his glory. The fact that Jesus died in our place on the cross, he died in our place. So instead of us paying for our sins, he paid for them. And when we put our faith and trust in his death on our account, God credits to us his righteousness. And so the idea is we've been declared righteous because of our faith and trust in Christ. And from that declaration of who we are in Christ, we're to now live it out practically in everyday life. In other words, are we practically righteous? If you look at your life on a day-to-day -day basis, would you say that you're 100% righteous in practice? <laughs> no. Uh, the closer I get to the Lord, the more I realize how unrighteous I am left to myself. But the idea is from the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us through his spirit in us. Now we're able to act it out uh, through him. And so the righteous now has the mind of God. The righteous has the spirit of God who's able to alert you when the hypocrite comes. Have you ever as a believer, since you've been saved and the spirit of God now dwells in you. Have you ever had someone come up to you and just there's this like. There's something about this person that you know you have to be careful. 
or on guard. The, the Spirit of God is just kind of checking your spirit to know that what this person is saying, you know, don't take it for face value. See, the Spirit of God is able to give us wisdom to discern things, uh, including flattering lips. Now, if anyone ever comes to you with flattering lips, please let that be a lesson to be careful, right? Because usually with flattering lips, there's usually a motive behind those flattering lips. Uh, the greatest example, of course, is Jesus. Now, we are unlike Jesus, as we're going to see in the gospel according to Mark, in the fact that we can't read people's minds. We don't know people's hearts. We don't know their intentions. He could. And so he was able to decipher who the hypocrites were very, very closely. But this week, we're actually going to be talking about John the Baptist. And he had some pretty strong words to call people, didn't he? Brood of vipers, right? You ever call someone a brood of vipers? Not going to go over so well, probably. So, but the idea again is that the Lord is able to deliver us even from the hypocrite. He's able to give us wisdom to discern someone who's deceptive in nature. Uh, verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. And so we see in verses 10 and 11, they, they kind of go together with one another. There's this relationship between the individual and the city that that person lives in. And ultimately, you, you realize that it benefits the city and all of society when the righteous thrive, when they govern, when they lead. Uh, the more godly people there are, the better the, off the city will be. And why is that? Well, because the righteous are moved by God. They're given wisdom. They have compassion and concern for others' welfare, as opposed to just oneself. And they implement strategies, therefore, that benefit all, not just those who benefit them. Uh, at some level, the city seems to realize this, that when you have godly people, righteous people, as things play out, it benefits the city as a whole. Okay? Um, why? Because, well, they see the opposite of that so often, that wicked rulers take, wicked rulers destroy, wicked rulers uh, ruin everything that's good. Why? Because it's all about them. And so the wicked ruler is out for self. And when you look at different countries and you see rulers, say, dictatorships, uh, those sort of countries, the average person usually does not live very well off. Uh, I know in my wife's country, when aid gets sent to the Dominican Republic, most often or not, the people don't see it. Or when Haiti, remember the earthquake in Haiti a few years back and all that money was funneled down to Haiti? Most people didn't see that money. Why? Because people in leadership were corrupt. So they take that money and use it for themselves. So by and large, a city will prosper when there are righteous within the city. Uh, I believe as believers, this is where our salt and our light should shine before the city. They should see that, wow, Christians are the hardest working people we have. Especially as we become less and less of a Christian society, if you want to call it that, where, where to be Christian is becoming more and more weird. We as believers should stand out all the more. And people should be able to look at us and say, wow, you know, this person follows Jesus. They, they have character. They don't cut corners like everyone else does. You know, they don't cheat on the time card. They don't do these things that the average person might do. And so it benefits the city. Now, in verse 10, we see the response of the city. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. 
but also when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. Uh, we, we see this even in biblical history when Nero, Caesar Nero died in Rome. Remember, there were fires that took place in Rome. Many people believe that he was uh, the cause of those fires, even though he blamed Christians and ended up using Christians as a scapegoat. By and large, the city of Rome did not buy his lies. And many, many people still believe that he was to blame for the fires of Rome. And so when Nero dies, the city rejoices. Why? Because the guy was a nut. The guy was wicked. And as you see leaders who are wicked die, usually the people within those cities rejoice, especially for going back to dictatorships. While the person's alive, the people don't rejoice because they can't. There's no freedom to rejoice in the sense of if something bad happens to the government, you have to be quiet. But many times in these countries when the wicked person dies, the people rejoice. Now, the sad part that you see in places like Venezuela, sometimes when the wicked person dies, someone else even more wicked gets into place. Uh, and it ends up being worse for the people than it, than it was beforehand. Um, but here's what I just want to point out. As we, as we think about this biblically, we want to always look at every single verse in the Bible through the lens of the entire scripture. Uh, because these are just proverbs. These are general truths. But there are proverbs that seemingly contradict one another. And, and think of it this way. Is the city's response correct in that there's jubilation when the wicked perish? The first question we have to ask is, how does God respond when the wicked perish? Does that ring a bell for anyone? How about Ezekiel 18.23 and 33.11 says that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And therefore, if the Lord doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked, what should be the response of his children? See, the righteous, therefore, should not rejoice in their deaths, though they understand the social benefit and the impact of it, even personal benefits. I mean, didn't Christians benefit when Nero died? I think so. I mean, he had Christians wrapped in animal skin, thrown to the dogs and eaten alive. Uh, he dipped Christians in wax and light their heads on fire so they looked like giant candles. He wasn't very pleasant to the Christian. And yet... Wouldn't we want to rather be like David with Saul? Remember when Saul was killed and David finds out? You would think that David would be rejoicing, wouldn't you? After everything that Saul put David through. You would think that David would be like, Thank you, Lord! My enemy is dead! I don't have to run for my life anymore! I can be king! Right? Finally! This is it! Now I'm king! But at whose expense? See, David actually understood the Lord's heart in the matter. That's why he would never kill King Saul left to himself, even though his comrades wanted him to kill the king. Even when God, it seemed like he gave him opportunity to kill the king, David never did. He did not want to touch God's anointed. And, and what we see in David, remember the guy who comes after Saul is killed, and he comes to David, because David's kind of in bed with the Philistines at this time, and he comes to David to tell him that, that Saul and Jonathan are dead. I'm guessing that he thinks he's bearing good news to David. And David asks him how he knows, and he actually confesses that he's the one who ended up killing Saul. Saul asked him to do it, but he did it. He killed Saul. And what does David do to this man? He has him killed because he killed the king of Israel. He killed Saul, God's anointed. That was David's heart. 
And I believe that's the Lord's heart, that as believers, we don't rejoice even when the wicked fail. Why? Because those wicked people are just like us, apart from the grace of God, aren't they? See, that's how you really understand if someone knows Jesus. See, if you really understand the gospel that Jesus died for our sinners, and, he, and it's personal to you, you've experienced the love of God, the more you understand the gospel, the more your heart will grieve for your enemies. Because isn't that the gospel? God dying for his enemies. And we realize, who was, who was his enemy? I was. And the more I comprehend my sin, the more I comprehend my wickedness, my just, just rebellion against a just and holy God, and I realize his love in sending his son for me, how can I rejoice when the wicked perish? Because if but by the grace of God, what if I would have perished before the Lord had mercy on me? I think about that often. You ever think about that? That if you would have died before you trusted in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I think about that all the time. How many opportunities I had all growing up. I heard the gospel. I heard the gospel. And I would say, wait, Lord, wait, Lord. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to surrender yet, Lord. I want to have fun. And if I would have died on one of those drinking binges, if I would have died on a thousand of the things that I did, stupid things, where I put myself in harm's way before Jesus saved me. And I just believe that's the heart of the Lord. Even though the city rejoices, the Lord does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. Then we see in verse 11, the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted. Now the question is, does this mean that the Lord blesses the upright or does this mean that the upright blesses the city and is therefore exalted? I, I think the answer is probably both. Uh, isn't it true that the person God blesses will be a blessing to others? And so you, you take that blessing. So the more we become like Jesus Christ, the more others will benefit from it. And just as a couple examples, uh, in the New Testament, this is a principle that's applied to marriage. Uh, Peter will tell wives this regarding their unbelieving husbands. In other words, this is to a wife whose husband does not believe in the gospel. He says, wives likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that means the husband, they will without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When, when? when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very, very precious in the sight of God. So Peter tells the wife of an unbelieving husband, look, if you, notice it says here, you obs he observes your chaste conduct. It's not so much what you say to that unbelieving husband because he probably doesn't want to hear what you have to say many times. He wants to see, is this true? By Does it change your life? And therefore, by him watching you live out the gospel in your everyday life, becoming more like Christ, it, becomes a, it has a sanctifying effect on the husband, the unbelieving husband. And you can flip that, of course, in both ways. Maybe you have a believing husband and an unbelieving wife. In fact, Paul will tell us the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband. Um, and so we, we see again here this blessing. When God blesses, it's a blessing to other people. I know if a husband truly gets the gospel and he really understands Christ's love for him, what will that do to his marriage? 
How will he treat his bride who God tells him to love as Christ loves the church? Won't that change that selfish husband into a self-giving husband if he truly gets the gospel? That's what the blessing of God does. It changes us to bless others. Uh, And so by blessing of the upright, the city is exalted. Everyone benefits, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Verse 12. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. I want you to think about this verse, verse 12. In light of Jesus Christ... Doesn't Jesus exemplify this verse fully and completely? Look at it again. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. Think of when Jesus was on the cross. Who were his neighbors? They were two men who were cursing at him, just as everyone else was mocking him, spitting at him, and cursing him. And as we we look at the Lord Jesus, we, we don't find that in his heart, do we? He doesn't spew things back at those men. In fact, he wouldn't have to spew things back to them. He could just speak the truth to those two. He could just lay down the list of every reason why they're dying on those crosses and they deserve it to die. He could have done that and been just and right in doing so. And yet, what did he do? He opened not his mouth. And Peter says, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. See, he's the good neighbor. He's unlike this person in verse 10 who's devoid of wisdom, despising the neighbor, right? And what's the fruit of Jesus' response or non-response, if you will? What's the fruit of it? What happens to one of those people on the cross next to him? He believes. Lord, remember me in paradise, right? Remember me, Lord. It had such a profound impact on that guy who was formerly just, who knows, a few minutes ago cursing at Jesus. Something happens in his heart as he observes Jesus taking it on the cross and not foaming back at people that he believes on Jesus Christ. Not only does he believe after Jesus is dead, who else believes? How about the Gentile Roman centurion? who, by the way, would have witnessed probably hundreds of executions. He was probably there seeing many, many, many people crucified, and yet, as he's watching Jesus die on the cross, what does he say? Truly, this is the Son of God. This is different. He's so unlike every other person I've seen crucified. Every other person. Who is my neighbor? Now, the question, of course, that we can ask is, who is my neighbor, right? And we understand it's not just your physical neighbor, though that can apply. It could be the person that lives next to you. But didn't Jesus tell us in the Good Samaritan story that your neighbor is anyone that you come in contact with? In today's age, it doesn't even have to be physically, does it? Because you come in contact with people every single day, sometimes in person, sometimes over the phone, sometimes on a screen. Sometimes on Snapchat or, you know, all those things that we like to use today. Facebook and Twitter and... I don't know what anyone's using anymore, but, uh, you know, you come in contact with people. These are people who are your neighbors, so to speak, or the the salesman who calls you on the phone. That's your neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) I had one of those the other day, but thankfully I remembered what I was going to teach on, so... uh, 
But who is my neighbor? Is it the telemarketer who maybe this is an opportunity for you to share Jesus with someone? Who every person else just hangs up on them or tells them they don't want to hear it or whatever. They're calling you, by the way. You didn't call them. So now you have free access and tell that person about the Lord. Verse 13. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is faithful of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. So we have the talebearer here. We've talked a little bit about this in the past chapters. Um, you know, the talebearer, th- this person could be telling the truth, right? They could be going around speaking truth, but the question, of course, comes down to motive. Why does this person feel the need to tell everyone about someone else's business? Why? D- do they get more joy out of tearing someone else down? Uh, does it make them look better? Or do they just have too much time on their hands? I think, practically speaking, the bottom line is this. If you want to take this to the bank. If this person is faithful to deliver others' information out there in the public, what makes us think that they won't tell ours? Right? So be very careful around people who like to gossip and tell those things about other people. I believe is a, if, if this person's a professing Christian, I believe we need to stop them in their tracks and just tell them to stop, that we're not going, we don't need to hear what they're professing to say uh, and pray that the Spirit of God will bring conviction upon them. Um, this is something that can happen, especially in churches we know, and, and people that have too much time on their hands have way too much to say. And so let our words be few, as we've seen earlier in Proverbs, right? In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Verse 14. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And so we see the wisdom of having counsel Uh, And here, by the way, it's wise counsel that's implied. It's not necessarily warning us about the faults of negative counsel. We've already been told that time and time again in Proverbs of warnings about following the wrong crowd. No, this is implied that these are good counselors. Uh, And isn't it true, though, that this flies in the face of pride? You don't have to raise your hand. Is there anyone here who just hates asking others for advice? You just want to call the shots. You just want to make the decision. You, 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 know, you don't really like to ask for directions. You don't like to ask people for help. Um, it, it flies in the face of pride and ego, doesn't it? I want to be self-sufficient. I think we all do. That's one of the, one of the roots of sin is self-sufficiency, of being self-sufficient, especially from the Lord, uh, of not wanting to need God and not wanting to need others. It's pride. And so the idea here is that this, we are not God. Therefore, we need other people. We need others' counsel. Why? Because we all have blind spots, don't we? We all lack intelligence or information. There's an ignorance on our part. We also have, we all have known and unknown biases, don't we? And so we need people to speak truth into our lives as believers. We need the community, the family of God to be our counselors. This does not mean that we all need multiple uh, paid counselors. That's not what it's telling us. Most of the Bible, when it speaks of counsel, it's just speaking really of your peers. And the idea as a community of believers, we should be able to counsel one another in the things of God. We should be able to encourage one another, challenge one another. Think of all the one another's in the New Testament. Love one another. Speak the truth to one another in love. You know, uh, carry one another's burdens. There's all these things that we should be able to do for one another, and counsel is one of them. Now, are there times where we need to seek professional help? 
I'm sure, sure. Nothing wrong with that. But the, uh, again, notice that it doesn't just say counselor here, does it? It says the multitude of counselors, there are safety. So it's not putting anyone counselor on a pedestal here. Please understand there's a danger in counseling. And that danger is the counselor can become God. The counselor can become the intercessor. The counselor can become the mediator. The person who I always turn to when I need something. Who's the first one we should really turn to? We should turn to the Lord first, right? Because people will lead us astray. And sometimes people have the best intentions. But maybe the Lord's showing me something. And he wants me to trust him. He wants me to trust his word and what he's showing me. And people may have good intentions, but I need to turn to the Lord first. And what I found is this. Many times the Lord will speak to me when I'm seeking him. But I just don't have the faith to trust him. And so sometimes to actually send people to kind of encourage me and maybe speaking a word that really is the same thing he's already showing me. It's just confirmation. And because of my hard heart, sometimes he sends those counselors to kind of keep me on the straight and narrow of what he wants for me. Why? Because he loves me and he loves you. Uh, so we need the Lord. We need counselors. The more different counselors you can have who are godly people, the better because they speak truth into your life from different angles and different perspectives. The old saying, what? Two heads are better than one. Verse 15. He who is shorty, or a guarantee, a guarantor, for a stranger will suffer, but one who hates being shorty is secure. Again, we, we've already looked at this from a financial perspective. I think the term that I said before is this. If someone can't manage their own finances and they come to you wanting you to sign on to something, they just want to mismanage your finances, right? So be very careful when it comes to signing, co-signing things for people. Um, I realize there are situations we talked about before. You have a, you know, an 18-year-old who has no credit. and you know, There are things that we do as parents at times. But um, the bottom line is, as a general rule of thumb, it's not wise to co-sign other people's debt. Why? Well, because now it's your debt. And if they can't pay, then you have to pay. Now, here's the interesting thing about this, though, from a spiritual perspective. Isn't it true that we know one who understood the personal implication, yet chose to become shorty for a stranger? Does that sound familiar? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8-9. See, it warns us about it from a money perspective, but isn't it amazing that this is what God did for us through Christ? That he paid our debt? at his expense, not ours. And so it's the gospel. He bore on the tree the sentence for me, and now both the shorty and the sinner are free. Uh, he is an example of this, and he did it knowingly, right? It didn't catch him by surprise. It wasn't like, oh man, I didn't realize I was gonna have to pay, you know, I did, man, I didn't know I was gonna have to pay uh, Charlie's debt on this, right? It didn't catch him by surprise. He knew exactly what Charlie's debt was. He knew what all of our debt was, and he willingly paid the price for us. And so I'm thankful to the Lord that he was shorty for us. 16, a gracious woman retains honor, but ruthless men retain riches. Notice there's 
several contrasts here. The contrast ultimately is between the grace of a single woman and the violence of multiple men. Okay? Uh, the grace of a single woman versus the violence or the brutality of multiple men. And I think a perfect example of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Remember when David uh, and his men, his renegades, are out roaming around and they ultimately come across Nabal uh, and they had protected this family. They had protected his, his uh, livestock and his men and his supplies from the enemy and David's men are hungry and so they go to Nabal asking for food and what does he do? He says, nope, you're not having any of it. And so as a result of that, as a result of the rejection, David determines in his heart that he's going to destroy this household, this family. And then you have this wise woman, right? Abigail. And Abigail, she starts making the loaves of bread. She starts making the food and the provisions. She goes out to David and pleads on behalf of her husband and their family. And she basically takes the blame in a sense. She, she stands in the gap for them. And in this picture in 1 Samuel 25, you have a picture of this gracious woman retaining honor, and yet you have these ruthless men in the midst of it. Nabal's trying to hold on to his riches, and in the end, it ends up, he ends up dying himself, and uh, Abigail ends up marrying David. Uh, but we see different ladies throughout Scripture who have this beautiful, gracious spirit uh, of retaining honor, don't we? Uh, and that we also see a lot of bloodthirsty men, a lot of self-seeking men uh, who destroy everything in their path. Verse 17, the merciful man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it at his own death. Those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their ways are his delight. Though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the prosperity of the righteous will be delivered. These verses are, in a sense, joined together by a couple common themes, but I, I think the main one, uh, the main theme is that those who live for themselves will ultimately suffer, and those who serve others will be benefited. Isn't, couldn't you summarize it in that way? When you live for yourself, you will suffer. But when you serve others, you will be benefited. And in the New Testament, what you reap, what you, what you sow. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you reap abundantly, right? And so what is needed to understand is ultimately the final justice of God. Notice in verse 21, though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the prosperity of the righteous will be delivered. Isn't it true that evil men always have joined forces, but there will be a time when men joins forces together. The whole world will join forces to try to destroy the Lord and his people. And we understand that the Antichrist will come and he will be, bring this one world system, this one world government, this one world currency, and this one world religion. Uh, and the masses will flock to this, and it'll be an anti-God uh, religion, ultimately, as, as he sets himself up as God. And man will join forces against evil, and yet the Lord will simply destroy those who are against him in righteousness. Uh, verse 22. I like this one. This might be one that you want to memorize. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion or taste. 
course, the ring, it would have been a nose ring that women wore in biblical days. It was usually of gold or some precious stone that was used for a couple things. It was used to uh, be a sign of wealth. It was also to uh, make the woman more attractive in, in men's eyes. Um, gold, of course, being a precious metal, even to this day. And yet when you look at the, the, the woman, this, this woman who outwardly is beautiful, she is beautiful, she's a killer, but inwardly, there's just no discretion. There's, she lacks taste. There, there's something missing. Ultimately, she's missing the Lord. And, and the idea is, it's like this pig with <laughs> a ring of gold in its snout. What, is the, what does the pig do with its snout? Yeah, it makes loud noises, but that snout also goes into pretty yucky places, into feces snooting around in the mud and getting it all dirty and, and yucky. So it's not fitting. And again, the idea is as someone looks at a beautiful woman who lacks the ultimately godliness, the idea is what a shame. What a shame. Why would you, what a waste, if you will. Verse 23. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. So the righteous who has been given God's nature desire and act upon what is beneficial to others, even at their own expense. Okay. Let me give you a quick example that I heard a pastor uh, say. This is a true story. Um, this pastor was in New York City, and, and um, there was a woman who he met uh, who was, I believe... Really, uh, she was a new employee at a local, I believe it was a TV station. And as a new, new employee, she did something that was basically an unpardonable sin in that, in that industry. Uh, and, and it was the kind of thing that would cause her to just be fired and lose her entire career. And so there was a boss at this station who I guess had pretty good credentials, had a lot of history there. And he ends up saving her job by explaining that he didn't train her well enough. And so he took the blame for her, okay? Now this woman was a smart woman and she understood the game and she, in her experience, had seen many bosses and most of those bosses typically took credit for her successes. But she had never, ever seen someone take credit for her failure. And so it puzzles her, why would this man do this? Why would he risk his own career for, for her sake? And so she ends up kind of pestering him. Why did you do this? And finally, he answers her. And she said, okay, you asked me to tell you, and I'm going to tell you. I serve a God who gave up everything for me and for my sake. That's why I did it. This woman ends up becoming a Christian as a result of it. But here's the point. That boss's life had been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because he understood the gospel... He was able to extend that to her, to others. And that's why the desire of the righteous is only good. When you are right with the Lord and you have your heart is right, your heart will be right with others. And you will look at them through the lens of the gospel, which is what? Self-denying, <laughs> self-crucifying. Why? For the benefit of someone else. And that's where we want to head as believers in Christ. Verse 24 there is one who scatters yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, 
and he who waters will also be watered himself. And so we see here this great paradox of life. The one who gives will have more. The one who keeps will have less. And these truths seem to contradict themselves, don't they? At face value, they don't make sense, really, in the natural world. And yet, isn't it true that God's ways are different than man's ways? See, the, the point of this is this. This is a principle of the divine economy. Why? In other words, why is this paradox actually true in real life? Why is it true that the person who gives more will receive more, the person who keeps won't have anything? I believe it's because it's a spiritual law that reflects God's character. See, God is a giver. And so when we line our heart, our minds, and our lives with His, we place ourselves in the divine order of creation that He has established. Why? To reflect His glory. And so the more we know of his character and his person, ultimately in Christ, the more we should understand the principle. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Why? Because that's what God does. That's who God is. It's his nature. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because he gives cheerfully. He did not give his son, holding him back, saying, oh, man. For God so regretted the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? For God so, you know, was struggling. No, he loved the world. He was active in the, in, in, the, in the pursuit of us. And so because he's a giver, he desires us to be givers. John Bunyan said it this way, A man there was, though some did count him mad. The more he cast away, the more he had. He that bestows his goods upon the poor shall have as much gain and ten times more. <coughs> I think the best example of this I could, I could uh, find a nursing mother. You know, a nursing mother, the more milk that the baby takes in, what happens? The more milk that's produced. And so what a picture of God's economy. You can't outgive the Lord, can you? You have another couple verses in you? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's just try to iron this out. Verse 26. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Okay, the idea is that one withholds grain. It's speaking of human need, uh, perhaps to store either for himself or maybe he's trying to drive up the prices, supply and demand. So maybe he has the supply and he's withholding it from people. But here's the, here's the big picture of this. When people cry out, when the poor cry out, who hears them? The Lord does, right? He hears the cries of the, of the poor. And so, therefore, the results of the people's curse heard by God, it, this, this, this curse that, that the people will pronounce upon him, but the blessings on the one who sells it. Isn't that a picture of Joseph? Remember Joseph in the Old Testament, how there was a shortage, there was a famine in the land, and what did he do? He opened the storehouses, and he opened it up so that the people could come and share it with others. But there's also a spiritual principle of this. I just wanted to read. Uh, we, we're almost done here. H.A. Ironside said this, and I thought this was very powerful, a spiritual perspective of this verse. He said, If in this world the curses of the dying shall fall upon the withholder of corn, what shall be said of him who, being in possession of the bread of life, having the knowledge of the precious grace of God, is yet quite unconcerned as to the need of the vast multitudes on every hand who are going on to the second death, the lake of fire? The Christian is responsible to warn, to preach, to entreat the lost to be reconciled to God. We are debtors to all men because of the treasure committed to us. Sad indeed will be the accounting for such a life 
as live to themselves, withholding the corn, which alone can meet the dire need of the spiritually famine-stricken. And so he just encourages us, what, what is physical corn when we have the bread of life? We have the gospel of Jesus Christ to share to a lost and dying world. Let us never withhold that good news to people, amen? Let's share the Lord with those who he puts in our path. Verse 27, he who earnestly seeks good finds favor, but the trouble will come to him who seeks evil. And he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Uh, again, riches are not bad, right? In fact, sometimes they're a blessing, but when you put your trust in the riches, that's when they become a, a curse in a sense. So riches will either use you or you will use riches. If riches use you, then you will use others. And if you use riches, then you will use them to help others. See, the idea is you can actually tell your heart towards riches by how you use them. If you use them to benefit others, then you're using riches. If, if you store up riches for yourself, then you're, you're trying to use it for yourself. Uh, verse 29. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. The idea that the wind, in a sense, in Hebrew, it means just nothing. Ruach. Uh, he, he troubles his own house, and so he inherits nothing. Uh, the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. And so godly people, we, we've been talking about this, godly people will become more like Jesus Christ, and therefore their life will become a blessing to others. Kind of the theme of tonight, I think. Uh, and it says, he who wins souls is wise. Literally, it means he who takes their lives. Usually that's meant in the wrong way, like you take someone's life. But here it's, it's kind of a flip play on words. Uh, and it's not just soul winning. You ever go to a church where everything was about, you got to win souls. And people just become numbers. And it just becomes about this exchange of trying to get someone to believe the facts. No, the idea here is that you're not just trying to, to win the argument. You're not just trying to win the day, uh, but you're actually giving them through word and deed of yourself and ultimately of the gospel of Christ. Um, and so it's a fruit of righteousness, a tree of life uh, that's, that someone wants to take hold of. It's a valuable thing. And finally, verse 31. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? Now, Peter will actually quote this verse from the Septuagint in 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. Uh, he said, For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Okay, so in closing, what's he saying? What he's saying is this. It's not that we're scarcely saved as far as our eternal salvation. Uh, it, it implies that while we're here on this earth, as our earthly salvation takes place, we will be under God's discipline. Okay? He doesn't overlook sin in our lives, even as believers. And so he chastens those whom he loves. Judgment begins in the house of God. He chastens his church. He sanctifies his church. And the idea is this. The ungodly may seem to get past his chastening on this side. And it may seem to them like nothing bad is going to happen. But the idea is, if the Lord judges his church, his people, then what makes the unrighteous think that they're going to withstand his judgment eternally? Okay? 
So we face it here as a form of being sanctified. They will be actually cast into the lake of fire as a form of eternal judgment. So um, that's just the idea of that text. So um, lots of God's word tonight. Sorry that we had to kind of rush through so much of it. But um, I really wanted to finish that chapter. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, more than anything, as I, as I think about this, I, I realize, Lord, may our hearts and lives be shaped by the gospel of your Son. Lord, everything will just fall into place, Lord, when the gospel is at the right place of our hearts and our lives. Lord, would you make Jesus Christ, him, and him crucified, be so real to us. It wouldn't just be a head knowledge thing, that it would really impact every aspect of our lives, our relationships with others. That, Lord, we would live crucified lives because of what he's done for us. That we would love others, even our enemy, because he loved us when we were enemies. May we bless those who curse us. May we pray for those who spitefully use us, Lord. May we be a blessing to this city that we live in, Lord. That people would look at believers and say, wow, I need that. I want that. I want, who, who is it that's done this in your life? So God, may we be salt and light in this very dark world, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.